welcome to Focus on the Founder. This is your host, Alan Miller from Matrix Partners. Uh, today, we're very excited to be launching Focus on the Founders and to be joined by Ryan Williams, the CEO and co-founder of Cadre. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. So, Ryan, you've got a you've got a really fascinating background with you know with roots in in Louisiana, um, an education at Harvard, and then kind of early career stops in finance before launching Cadre. You know, and throughout your kind of journey here, you you've had a real entrepreneurial drive and you know, starting your first company at 13, and then another business in college, you know, at Harvard, uh, buying foreclosed homes. Can you just like walk us through this journey and kind of the key influences along the way and kind of your life story before, um, before Cadre? Yeah, sure. You know, I think, um, you know, for me, I've always enjoyed building, um, in, in building organizations, building companies, building on ideas. Um, and, never have really allowed the, the risk, I guess, inherent in building or creating something to uh, deter me from, you know, pursuing what, what might look uh, challenging or what might look um, uh, unlikely. And so I guess in many ways, it sort of is kind of the definition of entrepreneurship. Um, I, you know, am from Louisiana originally, have had uh, been really blessed, frankly, with a great family and parents. Um, but again, I, I, I didn't really have that much to lose growing up. So I guess I've always been pretty confident in myself that even if I did uh, lose in terms of you know business not taking off or an idea not taking off, <clears throat> I could uh, I could build something back and figure it out quickly. And so you know, to your your question on just my entrepreneurial journey and trajectory, if, if I were to summarize. Uh, the trajectory, um, it'd almost be sort of a, a trilogy, sort of a headband to houses to high rises. And the headbands really, um, you know, the first business that, that I built, you know, when, when I was 13, one thing that I, I always wanted, but always cost too much was, was sports gear. Um, I love football, love basketball, and, um, I used to wear headbands and wristbands, you know, whether it was at sporting events or, uh, you know, just casually. Um, when those were still cool, by the way, they're not, they're not as uh, hip anymore these days. Um, but when, when actually, uh, when it came to getting sort of this, this gear, I found A, it was too much trouble and B, it was too much money. And so I got tired of trying to pay 15 to $20 for this sports apparel. And I, and I wondered and I asked myself, is it, isn't there a faster way to just, you know, buy these products with better prices? Um, and I think that sort of questioning really has been at the heart of a lot of the different businesses that I've ultimately launched, some that have gone well, some that haven't. Um, so I asked myself this question, you know, uh, what if I could figure out a way to buy this type of sports apparel at better prices? Um, and the next real step, I think, in the entrepreneurial journey is actually executing and trying to figure out a solution to those questions. And so I was actually able to find a wholesale supplier um, when I was uh, when I was in eighth grade, and basically was able to buy the headbands and wristbands at a fraction of the cost. Started selling them to family, friends, teams, and you know the business started taking off. Um, but I actually thought at some point, you know, someone could just come in and copy what I was doing. And um, so I decided, you know, there's got to be an opportunity here to do more. And the question that I I asked myself is, what if I could just differentiate my products? And um, at that time, there was also sort of a pervasive trend around sort of customization and personalizing things. You know, people love to personalize what they wear, whether it's T-shirts or jackets or whatever. That, that theme and trend was even more powerful 
um, you know, 15 years ago. And so I was actually able to capitalize on those two trends, branded apparel and customization, um, and created a pretty happy customer base. Everyone got the gear they wanted at lower prices and less time, and really personalized in a way that they could uniquely express themselves with, um, with pride. And so the outcome of that business was, you know, we ended up having um, multiple clients, some large, some smaller. Um, I was fortunate enough to sell and exit the business while in college. Um, and, you know, I don't have the headbands anymore, although, again, some people tell me that, that they are still cool to wear. But I do have that, that same passion, right, for solving problems. And it really, in many ways, starts with, with kind of a simple question, you know, like, what if? And so as I um, matriculated to college, again, sort of ran into an opportunity. It was a subprime credit crisis. 2008, 2009, um, I realized after spending some time in Atlanta, Georgia with one of my college roommates that um, there was a big dislocation between the value of a lot of the homes that were out in the market and what they would be auctioned for at these, these foreclosures. And again, I asked myself uh, another question, you know, what if I could actually add some transparency to this market and, and potentially invest in some of these communities, both from an economic standpoint and from really a social standpoint uh, to create more stability? And I realized, again, that, you know, the answer was combination of information, so being able to identify the true value of these homes using data and technology uh, and relationships and building a network of, of capital sources. So I spoke to a bunch of classmates and was fortunate to be backed by a few folks and began investing and buying some of these foreclosed homes um, in and throughout the Southeast. And what I was able to do is uh, clearly make good economic investments. There needs to clearly be a business model but also do good for the community. I was able to let folks who otherwise would be foreclosed on or um, might leave the community, stay in the homes, rent the homes out, build their credit back, um, and build a pretty powerful business over a couple of years where, you know, we had dozens of units um, and homes that we owned. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of took a step back as I finished up college and that business continued to grow and realized, again, um, there's a really compelling opportunity um, you have the cross-section of a lot of these offline industries and, and technology. And I spent some time doing tech banking at Goldman, um, you know, during the day uh, after I graduated. That night I was running this real estate business. And over time I decided that there had to be a, a way I could combine sort of these passions, right? So the real estate with a little of uh, technology application and um, the technology work I was doing um, to, uh, to transform people's futures and to do it at a greater scale than, you know, individual homes. Um, and so that idea kind of just festered and I was internalizing it a bit. And um, I think many times opportunities present themselves when you prepare yourself. And I was really preparing to try to go out and scale this real estate business I was building full-time instead of trying to do it part-time um, when I was contacted by Blackstone. Um, and Blackstone at that time was build, building their own single-family real estate business. Um, and I looked at their business as an um, a company and a platform that was really, in many ways, the gold standard for, for real estate investing. And so I thought I could actually take a lot of the experience I had, leverage it there in their platform and their institution to uh, to build uh, and create scale. Um, and, uh, and that's what I ultimately did after selling a subset of my homes. And when I was at Blackstone, I realized pretty quickly that there's a reason they had so much success. You know, they've been able to aggregate incredible human capital. Um, they had really unique sort of um, operating platforms, um, but I also realized that there was a lack of technology acumen, and there was a, a focus on building relationships and um, in the network versus sort of investing in infrastructure. Oftentimes, we sort of threw people at problems instead of creating tools, systems, workflow, and otherwise. And so I, um, after a couple of years there and 
had a really great exposure and experience. I kind of had this aha moment again um, in uh, in 2014 uh, when I, when I thought a lot about you know how Jurassic the real estate industry was, and um, you know the the idea for me was I've been exposed to tech, I've been exposed to real estate, I've been able to build businesses in both spaces. Um, and what if I could create a completely new age, new generation of, of investing? What if I could expand sort of our global economy for the better? And what if I could do it through um, technology and through democratization of access to things like real estate? Because real estate is one of the most important asset classes to build multi-generational wealth. And so when, when I took a step back, I realized that um, at a place like Blackstone, I didn't necessarily um, I wasn't necessarily working with folks who had kind of that, the incentive to democratize access to the very products that we were um, we were building and investing in. And I decided again that um, I would be the one to, to ultimately branch out and, and do that. Um, and you know, as you kind of look three years later to what later would become Cadre, um, you know, we've been backed by incredible investors. Um, I think in many ways the network has been pretty powerful. We've closed hundreds of millions in, in volume in less than a couple of years, and we're really just getting started. Um, I, I think that some of the most iconic brands that, that we all know of today, right, whether it's Amazon or Airbnb or um, Fidelity, you know, they all have a key selling point, and that selling point is trust. You can trust those companies to, to really deliver quality products and services with efficiency and consistency at pretty competitive prices. And each one of those companies, they disrupted and revolutionized major marketplaces using tech. Um, but for me, the genesis of Cadre was actually, we could do a lot of what those organizations and companies did, but actually do it in arguably a bigger market, a more antiquated market, and one that was a lot more inaccessible to most people, right? Real estate represents an $80 trillion global market. And so after sort of the, the cumulative experiences in real estate and tech and institutions, in an entrepreneurial capacity, um, I came to this mission that maybe was sort of inevitable at Cadre, which is how can we make real estate assets as easy to invest in as publicly traded stocks? And how can we unlock um, access to this asset class for not just hundreds or thousands, but millions of folks? If you look at any commercial building, you know, most people uh, would have no idea if you were to ask them how they buy that building, right? They might not know how. And even if they did, they probably really want to know what's going on with their investment. We're changing that at Cadre, like Amazon or eBay. Um, you know, we're an online platform that you can trust, right, to buy and sell. In our case, creating you know the world's first digital stock market for real assets. Um, but the goal is really over time to really enable anyone to be empowered, like the large traditional players. And through superior networks and data, which are kind of our key moats, we've assembled sort of a dream team of real estate experts and partners. Um, we've matched that domain expertise with tech leadership from Google, Facebook of the world. Um, and for us, you know, the, the best is definitely yet to come. You know, it's historically really been sort of this offline, inaccessible asset class. We're making it digital. We're modernizing it. And the analogy I oftentimes use is exaggerated to, um, you know, the traditional funds, the you know, Blackstones and Starwoods, what um, a, a company like Tesla is to the GMs and the Fords. We're trying to create a more efficient, Rise for everybody through tech. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that totally totally resonates and makes sense. And you know, as you as you kind of kind of mentioned, you kind of talked at a little bit of a high level. But you know, obviously, real estate has been traditionally a very highly liquid asset class, um, and there's a ton of kind of um, players that are doing things in commercial real estate. You know, you've got the uh, the real estate investment groups, you've got 
um, the sort of folks that are doing real estate trading and flipping, the REITs. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how Cadre, like a little bit more around how you're sort of enabling this greater liquidity? You've talked about the stock market, but how does it actually work? And can you just give us the kind of one minute version of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the way I think about it is the fundamental barrier for most people to invest um, is is really you know, information, right? And what does technology do really well? It adds transparency to markets where there is that, that asymmetry in information. And the way to think about what we're doing is really we're taking the best of the fund model, right, the institutional rigor and curation, the best of the REIT model, the liquidity, and the best of sort of going direct, you know, the, the trading and flipping yourself, and that's the trust and the transparency. And we're removing the worst of those models, right? The worst in the fund model is the fees, the opacity, the lack of liquidity, the worst in the REIT model is the correlation to the stock market, uh, the lack of deal-level fungibility, the worst in going direct, it's adverse election. And so the way I think about Cadre, it's almost uh, as if you were to um, be able to invest um, in sort of a, a subset of deals. I oftentimes tell our, our, our investors, each deal is almost like its own baseball card, right? You can come to the platform, you can get the high-level snapshot, the key analytics and information, and you can buy that baseball card. And over time, you can trade that baseball card. Um, but through technology, we're making the experience consumer-like, immersive, engaging, and easy to navigate. Gotcha. And to my understanding, so far, the focus has really been on sort of institutional investors. Is there a plan to sort of, um, you know, eventually give an opportunity for sort of everyday retail investors, similar to kind of what, you know, the Betterments and the Wealthfronts and the Robinhoods, you know, even, you know, more recent companies like Coinbase have done? Do you have a a long-term goal to maybe include or provide access to retail investors? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we took a, we're, we're taking a strategy focusing today on um, actually more than just institutional, right? We have a lot of accredited investors, individual high net worth, et cetera. But the reason why we're starting at that point in the, uh, um, in kind of the investing uh, ecosystem is because we really want to focus on building trust and trust at scale. Uh, because, you know, real estate and fintech world, our, our philosophy is, um, you know, you, you can't build sort of a, uh, a massive portfolio overnight or, or scale um, a business in a viral way through sort of a widget or a filter, right? Like this is a, an industry where people's financial future is at stake. And so we want to be really meticulous about proving out the model, um, which we've done uh, at the institutional level and the high net worth accredited level and then ultimately retail so that by the time we get to really the most underserved um, uh, customers, the retail uh, investors and, and uh, members of our economy, um, they know that Cadre is a hub and a destination for quality access, and they've seen the social proof points. And by the way, we've architected our platform so we can support um, millions and millions of users at scale. So let's uh, let's just sort of shift gears here a little bit and and talk a little bit more about sort of the early days of Cadre. So you did an incredible job of kind of attracting this. Uh, great team, you know, from financial institutions, from real estate players, and even from sort of technology companies like Square. Uh, so just really curious, how, how did you go about hiring, let's say, your first five to 10 employees? What were sort of the things you were looking for in these employees? Um, and, and how did you get them to take the, the leap of faith to, uh, to join you uh, at Cadre? Yeah, I mean, look, first thing is that, you know, there's a, a phrase and a saying that, you know, output is never greater than input, um, and that, for anyone who's, who's listening and is looking to build a business, is 100% true. You, you, you have to be somewhat crazy, frankly, to, to start a company, just in general, right? The odds are 
very, very stacked against you. Um, and so there's, there needs to be sort of a level of um, passion and determination that um, is, is rare and is, and is really challenging to, uh, to kind of sustain. And I think that um, it's intrinsic in some uh, cases. In other cases, it can be developed. So for me, I think that it was an authentic passion for this problem that really resonated with a lot of the folks I met with. But I got a lot of no's um, from a lot of people. Um, but the, the focus has always been when communicating what we're trying to do, make sure that the vision is one that's powerful, it's impactful, and can be uh, transformational. And I think you first have to get people to buy into that vision and realize that, um, especially in today's day and age, it, it can be one that changes like you know, the course of our future. And, and so I, I think people bought into the vision and, and really what we're trying to do at Cadre, increase universal participation in this asset class. Um, but the next thing that they want to understand in, in, in terms of how I convince folks to, to join is there's a real business model here as well, right? We have a pretty uh, strong um, sort of opportunity to create compelling operating leverage and unit economics. And um, that matters, you know, the, the profits and the potential for profits also matters uh, in, in addition to that purpose. And so I was very clear with communicating what the roadmap was and how um, I believe we'd get there. And then third, I think folks really want to make sure that uh, whatever company they're joining, if they're, they're joining a startup, there's a culture of, of innovation and opportunity uh, for growth. As a company grows, culture you know, can get strained. Um, but I, I guess I always kept a close watch on hiring and other changes and ensuring that they never undermined um, innovation or creativity. If you go to uh, an environment where you know there's a continued focus on growth, you'll get opportunities you don't deserve. And so that's really uh, that's really been kind of the third sort of leg of the stool for us. And and then other than that, it's really just been about um, caring and, and knowing that um, joining this kind of company uh, means that you'll be in an environment where those around you truly care for your development, for your growth, um, and for you as a person. And that's a lot more rare than, than it sounds. And um, in sort of the professional world today, um, but I tried to make sure I exemplified that throughout the process, whether it was when we were hiring someone and sending them nice uh, uh, gifts, or um, when we were onboarding them, sitting through every single um, you know one-on-one -on -one session. That that level of care and consideration is is uh, it's something that's pretty enduring and powerful. Tell me a little bit about sort of your relationships with your investors, you know, early stage and, and kind of into sort of the mid to later stages. You know, what have they done to enable you, uh, you know, to succeed in building the business, you know, beyond the sort of obvious capital injection? Um, are there things they've done or, or said or, or, or helped you with in your own thinking that have been kind of instrumental uh, in kind of the growth of Cadre? Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, I think it was Vinod Kosla, and he's, at, he's one of our investors uh, as well, or Kosla Ventures is. You know, he said that the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs isn't always building that network of investors and advisors, but it's knowing who to listen to for what. And, um, you know, that's been, frankly, the challenge at this stage. Uh, but what I will say is that whether it's the Andreessen Horowitz folks, Jeff Jordan, who's joined our board, General Catalyst, Joel Cutler, Thrive Capital, Josh Kushner, uh, Coastal Ventures, uh, Founders Fund, et cetera, um, I've been able to really sort of equip a network where I, there's domain expertise that's every part of operating a company and frankly um, in some sort of the industry itself and been really fortunate to kind of get up the growth curve a lot quicker than um, others might have been able to because I've really been able to leverage their advice in a few areas. First, um, creating a culture, right? Sort of building a, uh, a competitive strategy, um, hiring, developing that talent. Um, 
market strategy, expansion growth. And so every sort of point in, in sort of the development of a company from hiring folks to developing them to growing them to letting people go, um, I've been fortunate to sort of have a, a captain of, of each of those shifts that um, I've been able to leverage in. I think that's where you get the most help. Capital is great. There's a lot of capital out in the world today. Um, you want sort of uh, investors who, who feel aligned, uh, who feel committed, and, and know it's really going to be a symbiotic relationship. And I think I've, uh, I've done that. Uh, and then, you know, updated folks, even outside, you know, the, uh, the asks that I oftentimes have so that they feel uh, aligned and invested. Yeah, and then so then shifting gears again a little bit here, but just kind of looking at the operating side of, of your business, if you had to kind of zero in on sort of the the two to three or four metrics that kind of really drive um, your business at Cadre, what would you say those metrics are, and, and how how did you kind of orient orient the company around sort of improving those metrics? Sure. So there's a few. There's there's quality. Um, you know, if you're thinking about kind of KPIs, and for us, quality is really about performance of um, the the assets on our, assets on our marketplace and performance of um, our you know, internal curation process. Um, and the reason quality is so important is because it leads to a greater level of trust. Um, the second kind of metric we've focused on is, is engagement, and engagement is best represented in the number of times a potential user. Uh, participates by its interest in multiple deals. Again, that's a, a, a proxy for trust and for what we've seen begin to really scale network effects. When buyers become sellers and buyers expand our natural network of buyers by referring contrary to other folks. Think of Facebook that had this interesting uh, metric where they started seeing there's a unique inflection point, um, you know, when someone spent X amount of hours on the platform in terms of um, recommending or referring Facebook usage to others. And so we have a similar dynamic on, on kind of the uh, the engagement front that we've really kept a pulse on as we've grown our platform organically. And I think third is really scale. And for us, it's really about volume of, of quality inventory on our platform. And that's important because ultimately our marketplace uh, will be constrained by the number of opportunities that are investable, the number of, of opportunities that are tradable. So for us, it kind of was a, a little bit of a natural evolution of thinking about what are the key drivers of supply and demand for us um, in the near term? And if we had to really index towards, um, you know, one or two of those key drivers in the next year to two years, what would they look like? And, and so those kind of three metrics and KPIs have really surfaced to uh, to the top. And then on the sort of orienting your company around those those metrics, how do you build a build the organization around around those? Is it kind of through, um, you know, kind of having like weekly meetings around those KPIs or how do, how do you keep it kind of top of mind for everyone? Right. I mean, the first thing is, as a leader, you have to always, always uh, over-communicate. You know, communicate five times more than you think is necessary because um, it takes a long time for people to really begin internalizing uh, these uh, these messages that might seem obvious to you. And so, for me, it's really about every time we have a, an all-hands, you know, reiterating what our, our key focus and mission is um, and the key metrics. But you also want to make them visible, right? So we've created a, a company-wide dashboard where we surface those kind of key three to four metrics for everyone to consume and review. Um, they're represented in our kind of goal-setting process, our OKR process here, that people update on a weekly basis. And so it's not just uh, top of mind from a communication um, standpoint, but it's also top of mind from uh, a, a visual perspective. And then I think it's about 
recognizing um, performance against those metrics as well. So at our team all hands or our, our, um, our monthly um, okay, our recap sessions, you know, we'll recognize folks who've excelled in those in those areas. So you want to clearly create a, an environment where it's top of mind, where it's consistently communicated, but then where it's also recognized, rewarded, and incentivized. Um, and you do that through these public forums that um, also are really great opportunities for, for the company and for the team to just have a level of transparency into what's happening across the organization. Cool. So I think uh, we'll kind of end with this this sort of last question here, which is, if you were to take a step back and you could, you know, you're obviously building Cadre, but if you could go out there and build another company, um, and maybe it's at the intersect of real estate and finance, or at, you know, sort of alternative assets more broadly, or maybe it's something outside of that in some other part of fintech, you know, what what other areas do you think, you know, are, are sort of really exciting and where you think technology can really enable a better product or create a more efficient uh, service? Great question. I haven't gotten asked that one in a while. So, um, so you know, there's, there's, I have a lot of um, other, you know, passions and areas of interest um, that, that I've clearly thought about just as an entrepreneur. You're, you're, you're always thinking, you're always seeing sort of uh, issues and challenges as opportunities. And so I think there's a few areas that are, are really, really interesting to me. Uh, the first is, is education. I think that we, um, and you can even look at that just in sort of the economic uh, realities of our education system. I mean, colleges and universities as they exist today, um, uh, you know, you should get, you should, you should try to take a snapshot of the, uh, of the, the, the uh, university and college system today because it will be different um, in five years. It will be drastically different in, in, in 20 years. Um, it might not even exist in many ways. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm really actually excited about the prospects of um, refining, redeveloping, and changing how people learn, how people are trained, and how talent is developed. Hopefully, democratizing the ability um, for more people to have um, access to sort of this intellectual capital um, that really has been kind of constrained for the few. Um, and so, I really do like ed tech, and I think there's some really compelling opportunities starting, um, you know, from the day someone's born till the day they die. Um, that uh, that kind of are nice, nicely intersecting with just um, some economic fundamental challenges with what our current education system is. So EdTech would be something that I would, um, that I've had a few ideas around that, that I think is really interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities, frankly, uh, just in, in, in biotech in general. I'm not necessarily equipped to build a business in that space, but I think, again, you're seeing so many global changes in the space that it would be tough to not get excited. Um, and then I think uh, within FinTech, I, I'm, I'm really excited, frankly, about um, some of these other alternative asset classes, right? You're seeing now a ton of investment in infrastructure, uh, natural resources, and timber and oil, but in many ways they're lagging real estate even just in terms of the development of those markets. And so, um, you know, Cadre clearly has a vision of unlocking those asset classes at some point, but if we never get there, frankly, we can build a pretty big business. Um, and if we don't get there, then maybe it's sort of uh, something that, that could become an opportunity um, for me or for folks um, out there listening to uh, to address at a later stage. Um, so those would be kind of the key areas that I think are, are really exciting and present a ton of opportunities. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably about all the time we have for, for today. So, um, you know, thanks a ton, Ryan, and, and kind of all the, all the best to Cadre. Thank you. Good luck, everybody. I appreciate it. <laughs>